Hello, my name is Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. I now present Cherry Muhanji, born Jeanette Washington in 1939 in Detroit, Michigan. Cherry is an award-winning author who has taught at various colleges and universities. My father worked for Ford Motor Company, so we lived better because Ford was the only one who was hiring blacks from the 20s, I believe, and he paid a decent wage. And he said that he wanted his workers to be able to buy his automobiles. But then there was the scourges or the scuffling in, I'm going to say, 40s, 50s with unions. And, of course, he didn't want anything to do with that. But we lived well because we can have a large family. And I was never denied anything, you know, in terms of clothes. We weren't, we lived, I didn't recognize the poverty level we lived at compared to the world or the United States. So I got on pretty good. So I grew up in the, what they call the Brewster Project, and that was an elevation at the time, mainly because uh, I can remember that my first cousin did not live in the Brewster Project or any project, and they didn't have hot water. They had to boil it on the stove. I remember that, and I thought, wow, we do have running hot water. Uh, I can remember sometimes they had kerosene lamps, and uh, we had electricity all the time. And even right next to the Brewster Project, because all of us went to the same schools, I could go to their houses, and they were really damp, often dark. But my house was never like that. We were living better. I can't remember there was a jealousy because, you know, we went to the same schools. We played the same games often with each other. We communicated. I mean, one of my earliest uh, memories is I did have problems with Teresa Franklin, mainly because uh, she, uh, we used to have skating and she had better skates than I had. She could afford the better skates. She could always, she was always showing off. But I was the best skater, but I could never keep up with her. So this day, I have this love-hate relationship with Aretha Franklin, whatever. Now, I could see her in the street. I could see uh, Stevie Wonder live right down the street from me, little Stevie Wonder. So so you're talking about the Aretha Franklin and the Stevie Wonder. Yeah, I'm talking all, yeah, I'm talking these people. <laughs> yes, because we were all there. And I didn't think very much about it. Uh, C.B. wanted to live a half a block from me, and he was very dirty and unkempt because he wasn't taken care of. And we uh, used to run down the alley and beat on garbage cans, you know, and annoy everybody. We'd have to either go out and run him off or call the police. I'm sure somebody did, even probably my own mother. My mother was very keen on what was happening politically. So she followed a lot of the politics coming out of the Harlem Renaissance, which was not the language that she used. But I knew some of that. So it was her. But my father was the one that gave me the language of the people because he was, you know, out and about. He was what we call a sport or a dandy. And he was the pool hustler. 
So he would, you know, these, these, there was competition. The young man would come into the pool hall and he was an older man. And he would act like he didn't know a boot stick from a hole in the ground, suck at the men, and then run the table. I mean, it was fabulous. And I used to go watch him play. And, you know, I can remember going back because the boo hall was on our way to the picture shows. Or the, and so he would always stop and there would be three or four of us and he would always give her candy. You know, we didn't have to buy any in the theater. And so every now and again, I'd have to give a message from my mother to my father. If I, I walked into the pool room, they knew where I was. If he was busy running the table or whatever, he'd cite anybody out or whatever, I was to stand until he turned his attention to me, which meant now you can talk to me, now you can tell me what you've come for, now that you can do whatever. But until then, you know, it's like if you watch people, I know the game of golf, I won't go into all of that, but you know, if you get very quiet until they make this stroke, everybody's very, very quiet watching this. That's the way it was in the pool hall when he was performing. So I did, I did watch him and I, um, Watched him play, but I also heard him cite people out with the language that he used. You know, I'm just an old man. I mean, you can't, it, you know, my father was uh, quite a character. I mean, he really was. He uh, can remember one of the things about him was the fact that I came home one day and I was skating and he had the skates with the keys on them. And I could never get them tight enough because the skates would come off. So I'd wait for him to come home and he you know, four o'clock every day, he'd come home because he's working at boards, come home, tighten my skates. And one day I came, I was down trying to, you know, turn my skate key. And I looked up and my father was on stilts walking. I don't know where he got them. I don't know how he got them. I don't think he made them. But here was my father who tied, you know, tightened all the skate keys so all the kids' skates could stay on. And he was my father on stilts. So it gave me an edge. I mean, in terms of I had a father who can walk on stilts. I bet your old man can't walk on stilts. I bet your old man can't walk. I asked Cherry about living in Detroit during the unrest of the late 60s, which included 1967's 12th Street Riot, a disturbance that was ignited when a predominantly white Detroit police force raided a speakeasy in a mostly African-American neighborhood. The club was unexpectedly full of locals celebrating the return of GIs from the Vietnam War. As the police waited for the increased amount of transport now needed for all arrested, a crowd gathered. What began with the thrown bottles soon turned into neighborhood looting, which then escalated even further. After a couple days, President Lyndon Johnson authorized the use of troops. I was thrilled. <laughs> it was fair. Uh, the riot, uh, riot, I prefer to call it rebellion. Uh, my then husband, he had gotten a, a major job. He, he was one of the up and coming Negroes in Detroit. And he was out of town. He was worked for the Pfeiffer uh, Beer Company. Uh, the riot, uh, the rebellion broke out July 1967. And um, the city was burning. Tanks were in the street. I had, up until that point, been down to the telephone company trying to get a job because they historically did hire even um, Richard Bright worked for the phone company or the government. And so I went down three times to get the job. I could never pass the test. 
when the riot or rebellion broke out, whites fled the city. The police department, the fire department, all the services, including the telephone company. I went down, the riot was in 67, I went down in October, November of 67, got hired immediately. All of a sudden, I could pass. They put me on cable, not operator, which was where the money was. I never had to go on welfare, and I became a single mom and raised my children 17 and a half years in Michigan Bell. But if that riot rebellion had not happened, I could still not pass the test, or so they said. So it brought me good times. By the time tensions simmered in Detroit that summer, 43 were dead and more than 7,200 arrested. But shortly after, the Detroit Police Department and the Greater Detroit Board of Commerce placed greater emphasis on the hiring of African Americans. In his 1989 book, Violence in the Model City, Sidney Fine quoted a Michigan Bell employment supervisor in 1968 as saying, quote, For years, businesses tried to screen people out. Now we are trying to find reasons to screen them in. But when I finally got to Cuba in the 90s, I met this woman who came up through Fidel. And as I had come up through segregated communities, and she said to me, the only thing that I was going to be able to do would be two things. I was going to be a maid or I was going to be a whore. That was what my option was under Batista before Castro came to power. And I said, you know, that's real interesting because, and we were about the same age. I said, you know, I could be a maid and maybe if I took enough courses, I could probably be, um, couldn't be a secretary because I remember when they hired what we call high yellow sales girls downtown. See, we didn't have sales girls, uh, colored sales girls downtown. They ran the elevators, but they did not go face-to-face with the customers. And I can remember when they did, and all of us in the neighborhood, or many of us in the neighborhood, would go down just to buy something because they were behind the counter. If you can, that was real important to us. I was considered in the community a piece of yellow, Y-E-L-L-A-H, road away. This is internalized oppression in the community because I got the color, but I didn't get the hair. I didn't get the nose and I didn't get the lips. So my color was wasted. So I was considered a high yellow. I didn't get what I needed. This is internal now. When the 60s happened, I was able to, because I had this job, my coloring in dealing with white folks was important because if all of us used to bring down people in the telephone company to talk about what we were doing, and they would always come to me. They would all, I was a spokesperson because, and I, I couldn't get it. You know, I, I didn't because there were people who had been longer than me, who were smarter than me and everything else. And then somebody, when um, I got published, as I got into college, and uh, one of the women came up, I said, you know, all of you always come up to me. I said, but there are two other people here that are in this book, Tight Spaces was our first book. It was my niece and my best friend, but their skin color was different. And they say, well, we come to you because we're not afraid of you. That's what was said. Wow. And so it was a problem. I was very 
not one that was um, darker skinned African American women in the community were very angry about all that. And they took a lot of it out on me because of the, my look. But the men loved it. <laughs> so there you have it. People don't recognize you could always go to Cuba. You couldn't go as a tourist, but you could go as an educator. You could go as an artist. You could go religiously. You could go any kind of way you could go, except you couldn't go that way. Generally, you had to attach yourself to an organization that was doing that. And Clinton, during those years, made it possible for us to go legally. Then it clamped down, and I kept going illegally out of Cancun, walk across the island of Cancun and buy a ticket on Cubana Airlines, and then fly directly into Cuba. So I did that. I used to take medical supplies, and you know they were under the special period when they broke away from the um, Soviet Union. So they didn't have deodorant and toothpaste and things that were there. So I would go down with a backpack. And I would put a uh, uh, something on my door here in Iowa, and I would let my people, you know, people know in my classes and whatever that I was going, and people would fill it up with things to take to Cuba. I took lenses for glasses. I took frames for glasses. I took all kinds of things. So when you land in, in Cuba, what do you do? Like, where do you stay? Well, the deal was, we, you know, organizations, you, you were generally attached to an organization initially. And so I knew a house there that they accepted Americans. And uh, Sada, I don't know if you know, but Sada Secura was one of the women who escaped to Cuba from a prison in the United States in the 80s. And she was there and nobody got out of this prison. So when we asked her, how did you get out? And she said, have you read the slave narratives? And, you know, we kind of said, yeah, we know. And we said, do you think that the slave people who came up from the South who, who got to the North, do you think they told you how they did that? So we were shamed because you don't tell who helped you. You don't tell any of it. And so we never found out how she got out. Admittedly, I had absolutely no idea who the woman was that Cherry mentioned. I relied on Google's extremely forgiving did you mean function to sort out my garbled attempt at spelling her name. Asada Shakur was a member of the former Black Liberation Army. In 1977, Shakur was convicted of first-degree murder of a New Jersey state trooper. She was a passenger in a car that had been pulled over. The driver of the car was killed in the shootout that also wounded Shakur, who claimed the jury, quote, convicted a woman with her hands up. Shakur escaped prison in 1979 and made it to Cuba, where she received political asylum. Her story is long and ongoing, and I highly suggest reading more about it online. The Cubans were wonderful. They played good jazz. My interest, they are uh, very warm. I was very interested in um, their mythology before communism. You know, people say they were godless, but if you were invited into their houses, which they did, if you could get in the back of the house for some reason, maybe going to the john or somehow seeing in the bedroom or whatever. They always had their ritual stuff like Shango, Dobatala, all of these various religions from Africa was there. It's in the parents, not the young people. Young people didn't know anything, but the parents did. And so since I was older, 
And I talked to them about their, you know, the transition from Africa to Cuba and to the Caribbean, all of that. And uh, so I had a great time and I learned a lot and I brought back things to teach here in the United States. If I had been part of the border, I would have been fined 100000 no, was it 10000 A vast amount of money, but somehow... I looked so goofy when I came back through from Cuba to the United States. You'd have to go through customs. You know, I put on a silly hat. Uh, American, you know, we all look alike in the sense that we look kind of starry-eyed. Put on a whole lot of stuff, had a, a straw bag, kept my head kind of down. And when they would kind of look at me, they didn't go through my bag. I played to their stereotype is what I'm trying to say. And I never got caught bringing back videos, and you couldn't bring back anything. I found out that if you, and I'll give you one example, I got in a taxi. This is during a special period. This had to be the early 90s. And the taxi was $4 at that particular time because the Clinton, again, we were exchanging American dollars, and I kicked him a dollar. And the taxi driver who spoke fluent English said to me, that's what's wrong with capitalism. You think you can buy your way. The fare is $4. Give me a whole spiel on capitalism versus communism, socialism. And I was shocked. <laughs> I was really shocked. And so what they would do if you dared talk politics, which I did, because that's what I knew, they would know which bill passed in Congress that morning. That's how much they kept up with American politics. You know, we'd go into these various places, to the theater, to the hospitals. We didn't, they didn't go into the prisons, but they did let us go in and watch the tobacco world. You know, what they did was they hand rolled tobacco, you know, their, their famous cigars. But while the people are doing this, they have a reader. And this reader reads them what's going on in Cuba and what's going on in the world. So you keep a populace informed and the reader would come in. If there was something going on in the community that had to be straightened out, he would read it. Or if there's something that they needed to understand as Cubans, he would read it. So they were always kept up to date. So when I saw that, I went like, wow, that's pretty hip. And you see that even with Americans, then I don't know whether that's going to change or not, but uh, that's the way I saw it in the 90s. Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonicle. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at phonicle.com. For more episodes of Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks.